how not to screw up your kids' podcast. So, pour yourself a cuppa, find a comfy seat, and enjoy the conversation. This is episode 65, and today I'm in conversation with Josh Connolly. Josh is one of the UK's most influential mental health advocates. Josh has also spoken in the House of Commons, contributed to mental health policy, and even advised the scriptwriting team on Hollyoaks. He's run resilience workshops for village schools and global brands alike. Additionally, he's an ambassador for NACOA, a national charity supporting people affected by a parent's drinking. In this episode that he does with me, he talks about being a dad, a dad to six children, resilience, children's emotions, and how it all has to start with us. It's a must listen, whether you're a parent, someone who cares for children, or a friend of a parent. And I have to say, personally, I came away with so much information around a subject that I thought I knew an awful lot about. So it's really just enjoy. And at the end, there is a give as usual this week. So head over to my free resource library, drmaryhan.com forward slash library, where you'll find the link to download the resource. All you need to do is pop in your email address and you'll get instant access not only to this week's resource, but all the other free resources across all my podcast episodes. As ever, once you have listened, if you have enjoyed this episode, and particularly this one with Josh, please share it. Tell your friends about it and please review the podcast so that others can find us and we can spread the love. So until next time, enjoy. So on today's episode, I am joined by Josh Connolly. Now, I can't begin to tell you the number of things that I am really excited to talk to Josh about. But let before actually, Josh, why don't you introduce yourself and what you do? And then I'll talk about how we made the connection and why I think you're just going to make such a phenomenal guest. OK, thank you. Uh, look, really excited myself as well to be here. Um, I always struggle to describe exactly what I do because I do so many different things, right? Uh, I say I'm a resilience coach, and so I work with individuals and organizations to try and help people understand resilience in a new way, one that allows us to express and feel our full range of emotions and know that that's okay. And I think there's some myths to be broken down around how people, particularly boys and men, see resilience. So I'm quite passionate about that. And and so that takes on the form of I do some corporate stuff and then I do some I do some men's work uh, with something that we've got called Uncommon Man. And then I do some stuff in schools as well. So I'm quite passionate about going in and speaking to uh, young people uh, about emotions, really, and about what that means and what that means for our behavior and, and things like that. That is amazing. We love a bit of... I mean, th- the thing is, we are, as human beings, our experiences all around emotions. We can't kind of ignore that they're a huge part of, of what we are. And on top of that, you are a father as well. So you've got that whole perspective in terms of the resilience work that you do, but also raising your own children. Yeah, I am, I'm a father of six children. So my eldest is, uh, has just left school, is going to college in September, and my youngest is just starting school um, in September. So a wide range of ages as well. And actually that... That's quite an interesting thing as well, is have you noticed a big difference in terms of how you have parented across that age span? Because I'm guessing as the work that you've done has evolved, 
Has that changed how you parented from your eldest all the way down to your youngest or has it been pretty much the same? Oh, no, it's completely different. So when my first four children were born, I was still drinking. So I had a quite a, a bad problem with alcohol. My eldest was six years old when I stopped drinking. And so I've certainly learned the importance and the value of being there with my children that are, you know, four and five. So I have four children from a previous marriage. And then when things changed for me around 10, 11 years ago, I went on to get to, to remarry and had two more children with my wife who are now they're four and five so they have had completely different um starts to life than my older children yeah so it's it's you know it's chalk and cheese you would say yeah yeah very kind of different and how you know when you were going through that particularly difficult time with the drinking what did you afterwards when you reflect back on it is there anything that you did or said to your kids afterwards as some form of discussion around it because often people talk about this idea that they might be a parent might be having a difficult time going through their own kind of struggle and their own battle and there's always this question of actually how open should I be to my children how much should I explain to them what's going on how useful is that what choice did you make after the event what what I've learned from my own experiences is that I grew up my dad uh, had a problem with alcohol I lost my dad when I was nine years old I believe that I spent I had a lifetime of pain as a result of that and was only able to start to deal with that pain when I was able to try and make sense of it and comprehend it. And so what I take and what I learned from that is that it's absolutely vital that you help children to understand what they're sensing, feeling and help them to comprehend it. And I think it's that lack of comprehension. And I think it's our attempt to hide things from children that actually cause the problems. I say to people when they ask me, do you think I should tell my children? I say, well, you better tell them something because they'll be coming up with a story. Don't think they don't know. They already know. So they'll be creating a story. And children are egocentric, particularly up to a certain age. And so if you don't help them comprehend what they're experiencing, the story that they come up with will have them at the center of it. And it won't be, you know, in my children's case, it wouldn't have been my dad had a really difficult life and that's why he drank too much. It will be... Maybe if I work really, really hard at school, my dad will stop drinking. Or what was it about me that made my dad drink in the way that he did? And that's what children think. And and, and that's why I think it's so, so important using the right language to, to, to help them comprehend it. So we have to find a way. I think it's vital. God, that is so powerful to think about that and just those specific examples. Because I think so much of the time we think as parents that we need to shield our children from the difficulties that we're going through. But as you say so rightly, they make up their own story. And as you say, they're the centre. It's their fault. It's that it, They're the reason why their parents have split up, their mother's stressed, their father's drinking, whatever that might be. And as you say, they come up with these or slightly wild narratives of if I and if I do better at my times tables then that will mean that the problem will go away so it's it is so powerful is that what's driven your because I you know I feel that you've got this phenomenal mission around this resilience and your passion for resilience and teaching it is that where do you think it's come from in terms of your own personal experience yeah I do because I think Look, I think life is struggle, right? I think struggle is inevitable in life. I think it's, I actually think it's dysfunctional to pretend that struggle, that we can create a world where there is no struggle, 
right? It's dysfunctional to do that, I think, when you break it down. And so helping people to comprehend and understand their experiences and be able to meet their needs as a result of what they've experienced, I think is absolutely vital. And just to quickly bring it back to what you said about how as parents, uh, we're, we're scared to, you know, we want to shield them from the struggle. I think when I reflect on my own experience deeply, I think that's true. And I think there's a second layer here. And what I find with me, when I want to avoid conversations with my children, I will vocalize that I want to protect them from it. But so much of what is actually driving that for me is that I want to protect myself from having to be with them in the resulting emotions of what they're experiencing. And that's way more about me. That's about my inability to be with myself and as a result with them in the emotions of the difficult experience that they're having. And so what I take from that is that there's so much work that I can do on myself. So often when I struggle with my children and their behavior, it's normally because they're exposing a part of myself that I haven't yet been able to, or maybe willing to, to deal with. Yeah, which is what uh, it it's comes up with Shafali Zabri talks about this in the sort of conscious parenting is that our children often bring out aspects in ourselves that we need to address and that we need to focus in on. And rather than running away from it, we have to really kind of lean in. I think, Josh, you've said to me, for me something I, I always find whenever I have a guest on any, I learn so much and there's so much that's profound about what people say. And I think for me, it's this notion of life is struggle. It's so important that we recognise that it is... Because I think as, lot for, as parents, we almost feel that our role is to provide a happy, struggle-free life for our children. The choices that we make are around, I struggled as a child myself, for example, as a parent, with X, Y and Z. And therefore, I don't want my child to have to go without. I don't want my child to worry about this, this and this. And so we try and create that. But actually, in doing that, that is much more dysfunctional than being open and honest with our children that life is meant to be difficult it isn't meant to just crystallize things aren't meant to just happen we're meant to work for them things are meant to be difficult we are supposed to experience ups and downs and, and failure yeah and, and 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 so what happens i think particularly if you've had a difficult childhood certainly like i did when you kind of wake up to that because there is a point when you wake up to that right you start to realize that things perhaps weren't as they were supposed to be the sort of knee-jerk reaction or the first response is, I need to make sure my children don't have any struggles, right? Because I don't want them to feel and experience the things that I felt, right? But actually, when you take that further, for me, you start to realize, well, actually, struggle is inevitable. What I lacked in my life was somebody to be with me in my struggle, to step into my darkness and sit with me and hold my hand so I could make sense of it, right? And I think when I understand that, I start to realize my job is to not remove struggle from my children's life. My job is to help them comprehend it experience it and feel like they can move through it right and so 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 that they can grow into their life knowing that when struggle comes they've been through it before they comprehended it they know how to experience it they know how to at least feel like they can attempt to regulate themselves through it right and i grew up in the, the opposite of that right dysfunction for me is this continual sweeping under the carpet of the difficult emotions does let's not talk about it because it's too difficult to talk about stuff. And so we, I grew up with all this internalized stuff. I was angry. I was taught all my life I needed anger management and I had anger problems. I've never had anger problems. 
I've had difficulty in expressing my emotion because there's so much of it entangled inside of me and I've never known how to get rid of it. And so it comes out of me in fits of rage or certainly did when I was growing up into my, my young adulthood. Right? And when I understand that, that that is an emotional struggle, not an anger problem, right? then then I think we, you know, you start to understand things in a slightly sort of new way. Yeah, and I would imagine that that label of anger management is often given, and maybe I'm making some gender stereotype and you can kind of answer specifically to that, but I'm imagining that that tends to be given as a label to boys much more than girls because societally, certainly in the past, I mean, I've got an older brother, I've got a younger sister. As girls, we were actively encouraged to feel our emotions and talk about emotions, but I certainly don't remember my brother ever being encouraged to talk about his, his emotions. It just wasn't a male thing to do. Yeah, look, I think, that, you know, there's, a, there's even a lot of nuance to that conversation. When I look at, when I go into the, the schools, right, uh, if I'm doing an assembly with, a say, like, I don't know, two or 313 year olds, right, if I ask that whole group of people, has anybody in here ever experienced anxiety or overwhelm, right? generalizing but largely speaking a lot more girls hands will go up when i ask them to describe it they'll talk about i don't know fizziness in their body rising up in them heart beating really fast tight chest all of that kind of stuff then if i the very next question i ask is has anybody in here ever experienced fits of rage largely speaking it would be boys hands that go up right and if you ask them to describe what they experienced in the run-up to that angry outburst they'll describe exactly what the girls have just described right which is anxiety and overwhelm now there's lots of complex reasons for that, I'm sure. But one of the things that I take from it is that particularly when you get to senior school, it's much safer for boys to be angry than it is for boys to cry, right? You, you, you're likely to get bullied if you do a lot of crying within senior school, right? Mm. And so it's safer to get angry. And so, you know, I used to throw chairs in lessons and I would get thrown out of them. And when I look back, what was happening is I was so overwhelmed, so emotionally full that it came out of me in anger. Now, as a father of now four girls, I do believe the opposite, and I'm generalizing, of course, to a degree, but the opposite to be true for young girls, right? It's not safe for young girls to be angry, right? Yeah. I, I talk about how I think when I was a young boy, I could have I could have got thrown out of lessons loads for throwing a chair, and it was just sort of, that's what boys do. He's angry. I'd get put in isolation, naughty, brought back into the classroom. Now, I don't want to be too controversial, but I think a young girl, 13-year-old girl, could probably throw a chair maybe three times maximum before they found themselves in front of a GP, right? Yeah. Because girls are crazy way, way quicker if they express anger at a young age than boys are. And so you see, we view through such a different lens young boys and girls at that age, and, and it has a huge impact on how we process and release our emotions moving forward, I believe, anyway. Yeah, and but that's so true, isn't it? You hear so much of that and that these problematic boys and these difficult boys and it's it's this sort of, well, boys will be boys. They tend to be more physical and they're... And yet, actually, we don't always respond to the emotion behind the behaviour. So this angst-ridden inner turmoil that is going on for this young man is then externally seen as an act of aggression and therefore all the interventions that are put in place are all around anger management and not actually around what's the deep-rooted emotion behind that behavior let's ignore the throwing of the chair but actually look at where this might be coming from because i think when we do that i'm guessing we respond more compassionately rather than punitively 
Yeah, look, I think it's true in schools and I think it's true as we move into society largely as well, right? That actually what we do is we we treat getting the individual uh, more suited to be back in the system with which they exist in rather than asking what's going on and what's happened to this person, you know? So, so, so the anger management happens because with the pressure that teachers are under to get this child back into the system, everything is driven around making this child fit back into the system. It's not built around what's happening with this child and how do we have a whole holistic approach to, to help and support this child. It's how do we get them to sit back still for an hour and be in this lesson and not disturb everybody else that's part of the system, right? Yeah. So, so I think there's, there's so many layers to what is going on with children's distress. And, and, and I, I think sometimes we only ever even scratch the surface. And it's almost like children, to some degree, are sort of, uh, we sort of just do enough to get them through the system so that when they're 18 years old, bam, we can say you need to be responsible and we can blame them if they don't, if they're not, right? Because once you're an adult, it's your fault. You, you know, we live in a society that says, if, you know, the problem lies within you wholly. You have every opportunity and chance, the same as everybody else. And if, you're not, if your life is not a success, then there must be a problem in you. And I think that yeah. in itself is a problem. Yeah, and I think, and obviously I don't think either of us are suggesting at all that there's an issue with teachers, that this is a teacher problem. You know, teachers are operating within a system, ultimately. So if we're looking at it from the parent perspective, if we're going back to this notion that actually life is struggle, it's not about sugarcoating, but also wrapping our children in cotton wool. How do we, what should we be doing about changing the way that we parent day to day that creates that space at least for both for our children whether they're girls or boys but i'm guessing particularly do we need do we need to be worrying whether it's a girl or a boy do we need to do things differently or is it the same approach in terms of talking about emotions and encouraging that i think at the core it should be the same approach which is how do i help my child feel supported in their experience right so they get to be whoever they want to be right so they get to bring to the surface whatever they feel is below the surface, they can bring it to the surface and feel comfortable doing that, right? But on a more granular level of what do, what, what do I think I can do, particularly when I look at myself, I think the biggest work is to work on myself because when I'm not able to be with myself in my emotions, then I won't be with my children in their emotions. And that's still true of me today. It doesn't matter how good a game I talk, right? If I'm stressed, I'm gonna push my emotions down and not not deal with them. And if my child brings me their emotions, I'm not going to be able to be with them in them. And so, you know, because of who I am, I'm not going to say boys don't cry or don't be stupid, you're being silly. But I might say, everything's all right. Come on, don't you don't have to you don't have to cry. You're fine, right? You're fine. Right? Which isn't too dissimilar to the first two sentences that I said, perhaps just a little bit less harsh, right? So actually, what I need to do is recognize how much I want to run away from their difficult emotions and try and find time to be with them and step into their space and, and, and metaphorically at least hold their hand there. What I would on the, the back of that say, and it's very much like what you just referenced with the teachers, right? The teachers have their hands completely tied behind their back. And as parents, I think if we get it right 20% of the time, I think we're doing really, really well. And I don't say that joking. I think that's the truth. I, I, I think off the back of that, the the best parenting tool I know is the ability to revisit right which is the ability to go back to my children and say you know when you came to me with that emotion yesterday and i and i batted it back uh and i and i, and I pushed it down that was that was my stuff i was struggling yesterday because i felt 
quite emotionally full. I've had a difficult day and I want to create some space for you now to see if you want to talk about it. And I know that most times they'll be like, because they're kids, right? And they don't get caught up in the past. They'll be like, that was yesterday. I don't even know what you're talking about. But <laughs> you're still creating that space. There's value in a space because it's created, you know? Oh God, Josh, I love that. And that, as you say, is just so important. But how, okay, so there's, I've got like a million questions now. I think because I'm guessing the first bit is we've got to at least recognise that because so often when we listen to podcasts or we read books or whatever it is and we're trying to manage our child's emotions, maybe we've got a child that goes from naught to six, naught to explosion in a nanosecond and we're reading about strategies to manage our child. But what we don't always start off with, which is so key, is what's showing up for me in this moment so my two questions to start off with are a how do i become better at picking up that it's a me thing at that time and then two how do i then what should i then be doing in terms of working on me and the emotions that are coming up for me when my child is coming to me with their emotions well the first thing i would say is that i always start at a place of this is me when, when I'm emotionally ready, right? I will always make it my child when, when I'm in it normally, yeah? Because I'm struggling, right? And, it, and it's there, but, but the moment I can't be with them in their emotions in a calm manner, yeah? Then obviously something's happened in me and I've become dysregulated myself, right? And we don't talk anywhere near enough about the kind of, I think the, the, the bodily sensations that happen, the dysregulation that can happen for a million and one different reasons. So. I've got uh, four of my children live with me and two of my children come on the weekends, right? On a Friday, the house is very dysregulated. We're all very emotionally deregulated, okay? You can feel it and you can sense it. Now, my first port of call should be, I feel dysregulated here, right? Let me come back into my body and make sure that I'm regulating myself first before I start trying to escape the ways that I feel by micromanaging and over controlling my children's emotions in this space. And so how do I do that? I use breathing techniques, right? So I, I, I actively turn within and say, I'm coming back into my body, I slow my breathing, elongate my exhale. Right? And I buy myself some time. Yeah, before I start going around trying to control what's going on in the house. Once I can begin the very act of doing that, and if I can do that, and I can't do it every time, right? Let's be real about that. But the act of doing that myself will begin to co-regulate the people around me, right? That happens once I start to regulate myself and then I move towards my wife. Let's get the adults, the ones that create the safety in here. Let's regulate one another so that we can approach situations more calmly. And what, you know, I think everybody or most people will recognize when you've had enough sleep, you're really well fed, and you feel in a really, really good pace, your child can have a tantrum, right? Or go straight to, 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 to that place of emotional overwhelm. And you have the ability to be able to be with them relatively easy, right? If you can find a way to get to them spaces in the ways that I've just talked about, then actually you find that it's much easier to deal with because you can be with them in a, in, a, in a much more calm way. Does that make sense? Yeah. Completely. Yeah. No, I love that. And of course, children will pick up on that. As we said before, you know, when we're talking about children will will create the narrative to understand. And if they see that you are taking a moment and that you are regulating yourself, children are much more likely to, to do what they see than what we say. 
So that becomes part of that, oh, I've noticed that my mum or my dad are doing this. Um, they're kind of checking in on themselves and, and then you get this sort of ripple effect, don't you? And as you say, Josh, it's not about doing this 100% of the time. If we can do it 20% of the time, then it's the impact is massive, surely. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's huge. And also, the more that we do it, right, the more that we can also start to realise that sometimes children's expressions of emotions are a natural reaction to what they're experiencing. So if sometimes... I get sometimes I feel like I want to tell my children off because they're being a little bit moody. But if something bad has happened in their world, right, and they're being a little bit moody, when I say a bit moody, they might just be sitting down quietly watching something. Because of my sort of hypersensitivity, I connect into that sometimes, and I don't want him to, my son or my daughter to sit there not happy. And so I start getting angry about them not being happy when they have every right to not be happy in that moment. Yeah. So so then I might start saying. You should cheer up or, you know, don't, if you're going to sit like that, go and sit in your room if you want to mope about. Well, actually, what, what, I mope about when I've had a bad day, right? So, so who the hell am I to sort of tell them that they should never be in a, in a, in a difficult mood, right? And so the more that I think you can get to that place where you feel more comfortable with the full range of emotions, the less likely you're all going to be of reaching this, these angry outbursts that come, you know, they come, I'm sure. Yeah, and, and and it's also that recognition of that's normal. You know, we all will have moments where we're angry. We'll mm. all have moments where we'll become massively dysregulated and that we will launch into that tirade, which every parent does and probably does more than they would like. But it's, it's okay, we're not going to screw up our kids because we shout at them. Obviously, if we're doing it every moment of every day, mm. then it's going to have an impact. But if we're doing it, reflecting afterwards, returning back to that moment, having that discussion, and then two times out of 10, absolutely being spot on of knowing that we need to address what's got showing up for us first, then we're going to raise the most resilient kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and look, just to add to that, what you've just said as well, if we do have those outbursts, they come and they happen, right? I know we can be hard on ourselves, but I'll also introduce people to the flip side of that, which is like when people keep their anger in and they're walking about and everybody knows they're angry, but they're saying they're fine, right? And I tell you what, that can be worse than a, than an angry outburst, right? Actually, yeah. sometimes it's if, the, if that angry outburst is going to stop that kind of under the carpet anger with that happening, right? Then 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 actually it's a step in the right direction, really. Yeah, it's, well, that's the whole eggshells, isn't it? You can feel that there's an atmosphere, the tension is there, but you're, you don't know what's caused it necessarily. And that's often, again, if we go back to what we talked about much earlier on, that's where children then create their own explanation. So I have done something to make my parent feel that way. And if I was more this, that they, this wouldn't happen, which is not helpful at all, because more often than not, it's got nothing to do with the child, it's to do with what's going on for us. Mm. And it creates abandonment of self, right? It teaches, you know, it taught me as a child to that, you know, my personality and my value was based on how well I could walk on eggshells and how much influence I could have on other people and how they feel when I was a child. So, so I built a whole personality around how useful and good I am for other people. And that's hugely problematic when you reach adulthood with the implications that it can have on you. Oh, massively. And all of that sort of people-pleasing behaviour, particularly in the society that we live in now, can put us 
you know, in all sorts of, you know, it doesn't help us live life authentically to us at the best case scenario. Worst case scenario is it sends us down a whole route, rabbit hole of trying to fit in, doing things that are really not not good for us, not healthy for us at all. Mm. Yeah, and that was that was my experience, you know, that was my story. Yeah. Josh, okay, so I'm I'm totally convinced, and I'm sure there are lots of people that will be listening to this podcast episode thinking, oh my God, I, I you know, they've had some massive light bulb moments and pinging as my massive girl fan crush on Oprah Winfrey. She's having, you know, her aha yeah. moments. What do we now do? Because I'm sure that there'll be people listening to this that will be thinking, do you know what? I understand, or maybe I'm moving towards this, but I don't think my partner is. So how do we, in a situation where we are co-parenting and we're co-parenting at home together, and I'm sure it's, you know, it's obviously much more difficult when we're co-parenting and we're living in different homes and it's acrimonious, but let's start with the, with where it should be the, the easier is let's say we're co-parenting in the same home, but we have different viewpoints. Maybe we've got a parent that thinks that kids are being pampered and all this talk about emotions is just, you know, an excuse for them behaving badly. How do we begin to try and turn the narrative a little bit more collectively as the adults in the house? Look, I think it's really, the moment that you get into a situation where you're trying to alter or manage the way that another adult is showing up to a situation, it's really difficult territory, right? And so I do always think that doing as much work as you can on yourself so that you can show up in the most authentic way that that is right for you and always in truth. I think it should always be, I think you should always be in truth. And, you know, when I look at myself and my wife, I think it's okay for me to say to my children, I'm, I'm not entirely sure I agree with your mum on this front, but we're a team. And so I'm going with her on this one, right? And we, we do things together. I think the closer that you can be to, to sort of truth, uh, I think it's always going to be better for children. Because I think the moment that you get into any kind of masking or any kind of like, let me try and create a scenario or tell a child this story, they'll at least sense Something's awry here. Um, and when they do, it leads them to create their own stories. And again, like I've always said, I think that's dangerous. Yeah. So this is this, it goes back to what you've said before is like, let's work on ourselves. Let's be true to ourselves and be authentic in that and show up for our children that way rather than trying to fundamentally alter our partner and, and the way. And I'm guessing that over time, how mm. that affects our children potentially then changes how our partner might view a particular situation and might help them begin to seek that inner stuff too. Yeah, and look, what's the line that the, the truth will set you free, right? I think if we're always, when I say cl- as close to truth as we can, right, I, I think it's wrong to say that we're all completely openly truthful all of the time, right? There's a level of sort of tact and that that we all use. But I think that the closer that you are working towards being in, in that place of full sort of truthfulness, I don't think you can really go wrong, right? Whatever comes out of that is going to be closer to what what's right than what's wrong, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think the thing is, as we know, that children, when they're very young... You know, they idolise us. They, you know, we are like gods to them. Anything that we say, it's like, well, my mummy says, my daddy said, it's all that sort of thing. But as they get older, they see us in every single way that we truly are. Faults, yeah. 
wonderful qualities, everything. And so if we can show up truthfully and honestly and with that real integrity, then that helps them, I guess, do the same for them, you know, in terms of how they then show up. Yeah, look, look, and I think a lot of it, a lot of what we're talking about, I think can be sort of traced back or is is encompassing like a fear of shame. And I think we have a tendency to try and become like shameless, which can be a problem in itself, right? You know, when you look at like shame being linked to kind of guilt and the feelings, we need a certain amount of of shame, of healthy shame in our lives to end up, we don't want everyone to be shameless because that can be just as problematic as the opposite end of that, right? And so authenticity, to, to use that word, and integrity and all of that, I think comes from, from truthfulness and from difficult conversations. And, you know, let's not sweep things under the carpet and when we do let's lift the carpet up and pull them out and all have a difficult conversation about it as quickly as we can otherwise everybody's you know shimmying around the elephant in the room all of the time yeah and that's a problem it's a real problem because it creates more shame right it's more hidden stuff there's more secrets and they become problems for children yeah and then that's what creates the dysfunction then later on i guess and other and, and means of reducing the pain from that shame which isn't always the choices that we mm. make are not always the best for us. Yeah, no, exactly. And then, look, and then you become somebody who thinks you start telling lots of little white lies, right? To, to avoid people having to feel tricky things. And then before you know it, you know, you're tripping up on those things. And I grew up in an, in an alcoholic home, you know, so I developed a, a trait of, te- you know, lying when it was just as easy to tell the truth, right? Because that's what you did. And there's levels to that and scales to that. And I think we all exist in that if we're not careful. So, again, it comes back to, to what I've said of, of truth, you know. Yeah. Josh, you have been, honestly, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I've got, I've learned so much and I've got sort of much, you know, older children. And I think that there's so much that we can, honestly, I, I think we should probably have you on again and do another, do another one. If you could... There's a couple of things then, Josh. If you could leave people, I'm a real big fan of trying to focus on just one thing because we can read so much stuff. We can listen Mm -hmm. to so many inspiring conversations and think, right, oh my God, I need to do this, this and this. But actually, if we could just focus on doing one thing consistently, we can can then impact some change. So what would you say is the one thing as parents that we can do and... How can people find you? We will make sure there's always a free resource at the end of every podcast episode. So we will make sure that we've got some links so that you can you can get in touch with Josh if you want to do more, learn some more, and specifically the work that Josh does in terms of resilience coaching and also that work with adults. But what's the one thing and how can people find you? The one thing that I would say is allow yourself time to reset. Yeah. So change, change starts now. Change starts in the now and it can start every day in the now. So that would be the, the piece of advice that I would give. And people find me as the best places on my website, which is just joshconnolly.co.uk. And all my links are there. You can find me easily from there. Amazing. Josh, thank you so much. You have been amazing. And if anyone's got any questions, having seen them, please do email us in as usual at drmaryhan.com. Um, and on our contact form there and we can ping some questions across to Josh if um, 
if you've got anything there or reach him direct through his own website. Thank you so much, Josh. It's been amazing. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Brilliant.